You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am glad that you decided to join me. Today's a fun episode. I got to talk to another academic type, a scientist, a doctor, guy that works at Johns Hopkins University. He's part of the Human Genome Project. The guy is brilliant and has accomplished a ton. He's a computational genomic scientist, and there's that means a lot of different things. But uh, he's quite quite interesting. But he also is very interested in and writes some on the side about pseudoscience and bad science and how to look at it and, you know, just skeptical stuff, which is kind of right up my alley. So I've really enjoyed some of his reading. He writes for Forbes magazine, and uh, he gave me some time today so we could go through and talk about some goofy stuff that people believe. And it might make you irritated. If we had long enough, we could talk about everything that people are into that is, you know, silly, silly stuff like anti-vaxxing, you know, (laughs) raw milk. How about chiropractors? They're getting a lot of trouble for saying bad things about chiropractors. But we talk about that a little bit, as well as, you know, human genome and how that works. So I've very much enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you will too. Again, his name is Stephen Salzberg, Dr. Stephen Salzberg. You can look him up and follow his work. Um, I'd like to tell everybody some important stuff that also is going on, which is Matt and Toby out on tour we're going on tour the classic crime. So if you want to come see me and Toby play basically by ourselves and the music is quite interesting and neat. We're going we're headed kind of from Nashville, a little down southways through kind of Texas and up through California and you can get those tickets at theclassiccrime.com cuz we're going on tour with them. We're taking them in our bus. It's going to be a lot of fun and I would love to see you guys there and have those shows. You know, I'd like to have have some fans there just to prove that People like our band. So it means a lot when y'all come out to our shows. Uh, also, uh, we're gonna, we're trying to make a documentary about the Christian music industry. You can go to www.js.film. That's what would Jesus sell, uh, .film. And we're doing a Kickstarter campaign. It's going quite well. We're going to try and make a documentary about what we understand and know about the Christian music business. And I think that'll be fun. So if you want to participate in that, please do. And this show is also brought to you by Rockabilia, which is the place to get rock and roll, music, pop culture, memorabilia. It, uh, it's, they've got a comprehensive amount of stuff there. They really do. They've got great clothing, posters, shirts, you know, hats are really good, make great gifts. But, you know, maybe you hadn't bought a band shirt in a while because you hadn't been to a concert in a while because you're old. So, you know, you'll feel young again. So go over to rockabilia.com and use the code PC, break it down. You get 15% off whatever you get over there. All the stuff's officially licensed and it's good stuff. So you'll be supporting the artist and a good company when you do. All right. Enjoy the episode. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's met Carter. Yeah! to have you on because I dig some of your writing and stuff on Forbes. I just, when I find stuff like that and people fighting pseudoscience, it just makes me just 
gleeful within because I spend so much time. Um, I'm a relatively analytical person, have a science background, but I'm not in science. I'm a musician, actually, and podcaster. But I always have the inclination that that stuff is just driving me crazy. And I try to tell people, well, that's nonsense, or don't pay attention to this, or that, or whatever it is. And then when I find somebody that actually can say it and they'll listen to, because nobody listens to me. They think I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm not an expert, they say. And therefore, yeah. that somebody that pretends to be an expert jumps in line ahead of me basically to get listened to. So I'm thrilled when people are skeptical and, you know, will point out stuff like that. So I was felt so validated going through your articles. <laughs> well, I'm glad of that. Although people tell me all the time that I'm not an expert either. <laughs> well, um, you definitely are, I mean, a computational biologist and very highly regarded as such and been part of the Human Genome Project. Is Am I correct about that? Yeah, I okay. spent many years on the Human Genome Project. I was deeply involved in that. Okay, so good. Then people, but that that's a good amount of credibility that I don't have anything near. Yeah, so, so they'll listen to you I, more than they'll listen to me. Yeah, what I mean is uh, it's, it's a little um, ironic, I guess, but mm -hmm. when you criticize pseudoscience, uh, say acupuncture, homeopathy, for example, people will say, you're not an expert on those things. Right. And that my response is that there's nothing to be expert on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do know how to read the scientific literature and interpret the studies, though, mm -hmm. and I've looked at the studies, and when they show that something is bunk, I feel like I should say that. Yes. Well, I mean, even reading the studies and knowing how to read them is a, is a good skill, and you're right. How would oh, you yeah. be an expert in a field that is bunk? I mean, there's no—you know what I mean? Like, the only side of it would exactly. be the people that, that purport to do it. That's all—that's the only side that's that there exactly is when it's right. that kind of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think it's funny, too, when you start talking about stuff like that, conspiracy, I mean, conspiracy theories are this way, too, and pseudoscience, both. We all know what we're talking about. It's like, you know, those things like homeopathy and uh, whatever, you know, you start listening. People are like, yeah, stuff in that category, the category of, you know, people are able to co-mingle the different things and say, well, I like this one, but I don't like that one. But it's still a big category that, of very similar things that sh should stand out to you, I would think. Yeah, well, there are a wide variety of practices that go under pseudoscience. And what I tell people, I often get or have been asked many times, what do you think about alternative medicine or complementary and integrative medicine? Mm -hmm. And nowadays I've learned to respond with like, well, that's a big umbrella category. And it depends on what you mean by the question. I can't just give you a, a single answer. Mm -hmm. Some people include things like, you know, meditation or eating healthy foods. And I'm like, well, that's fine. You can do that. There's no, I have no problem with that. But if, if you start talking about medical treatments that have no basis in reality, then I have a problem with those. Yes. But you know, each one has its own claims and each one has to be debunked or rebutted separately. Mm -hmm. Well, so I don't, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. Um, I do want to get into some more of that, but I, I don't at all want to skip the, the whole part about the human genome project is something that I think oh, is sure. amazing. And so, and I didn't study up on this or anything, but I, I, I read a book by Francis Collins and he was the head of the genome project. Is that correct? Or, I know Francis quite well. Um, that's amazing he was to the, me. He was the head of the, um, NIH, uh, funding effort Okay, that funded the major centers in the U S that ran the project. So he was a visible face of the project, but it's not accurate to say he was the head okay. of the human genome. Project. Okay, good. Yeah, maybe I had that wrong, but I, I had I read his book, The Language of God. If you, 
I think Francis would like everyone to believe that. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, please initial, clarify. Tell me more about it. Well, when the project was launched, it was run. They, they initially uh, asked Jim Watson to be the head of it, but he had some um, commercial conflicts of interest that came out after a couple of years. So then he had to step down, and that's when Francis came in. But that was really the funding side. The, the actual mm -hmm. science was being done by a number of large centers in the U.S. and primarily the U.S. and the U.K. had the biggest centers, but there were centers in uh, France and Germany and England, and so I already said England, and China and many other places working on the Human Genome Project. And if there were any leaders, it was probably the leaders of the three biggest centers, mm -hmm. um, which would be the Sanger Center in the U.K., led, led by John Sulston, and a guy named Bob Waterston at, University of, uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and Eric Lander at the Broad Institute at MIT mm -hmm. the, on the U.S. side. And then there was the private effort that I collaborated with that was led by Craig Venter at a company called Solera Genomics. They were all, we were racing to see if we could get there first. That's great. Some of the biggest, best projects are that way when you get, you know, competing people working on an obvious project kind of thing like that. That's amazing. Do, are you a critic of his book, The Language of God? I know you, you do a lot on, you know, creation versus evolution and stuff, but... I have not read his book, so I, I probably I can't really bring myself to do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. That is no problem. Not what I was planning on talking about today, but I just thought it was interesting because I had followed that. And I, I mean, I've, I'm very excited about the whole genome project. So I just kind of want to think about that for a second. I've talked to some people before about CRISPR and told people on this show and another show I do about it. People ask me a whole lot about that. Um, do you have any new stuff to say about that and where we're at and how cheap mapping individual genomes is at? I don't have any very specific prepared questions about that, but I'm very interested in that territory. Well, since the human genome was was uh, first completed in 2001, we've sequenced hundreds of other plants and animals and thousands of bacteria. I've been involved in many of those projects myself. Mm -hmm. uh, just, to, uh, just last week, coincidentally, there was a front page story in the Washington Post about our new project to sequence the redwood and sequoia trees, which have uh, very complicated and very large genomes. So it's uh, this technology has transformed all kinds of biology. So and you're, if you're in any field of biology, whether you're studying plants or animals or bugs, you want the genome of the, of the organism that you're studying. Mm -hmm. So that technology has moved along very rapidly since 2000, even since the genome was finished. And um, one of the interesting factoids there is, is uh, in the 15, 16 years since, sequencing is 400,000 times faster than it was then. And, and a it lot was cheaper, too. Then. It's, I've estimated, about 75,000 times cheaper. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's good numbers on it. Because really it, it took, what, 15 years or whatever amount of years and whatever amount of billion dollars to you know, sequence at once, basically. And now what is the yeah. actual time and cost that it takes to do a, a, a genome? You can do a genome in a couple of days and for $1,000. Oh, my gosh. And and we believe that that's going to continue all the way down to, what, instant and free almost? Or what? I've tell, I tell people that compared to where it was in 2001, it's already free. Um, wow. Consider, considering what the costs were. But no, it's not free. It, it'll probably be a few hundred dollars in, a, in another few years. Mm -hmm. It'll be the sort of thing where if everybody will have their genome sequenced at some point. Because why not? Your genome is a resource that once you have it sequenced, you have it as a resource to kind of look up things the rest of your life. Yeah, but there's but, some real bad news maybe in that. There's some real ethical questions with how to deal with the, you know, potentially good and bad news that's in there, right? 
Or you think everybody will want it yeah. no matter what? Because I, I don't some people worry, you know, say, would you really want to know if you had Huntington's disease or something like that? Well, you just picked one of the few genes where a mutation can tell you something that's horrible to learn. That's that right. You have an incurable, untreatable, fatal, universally fatal disease. Right. And there's a single gene that's responsible. There are very few such genes. Um, if you have Huntington's disease in your family, then you probably already know it. Um, and yeah, those people probably don't want to get their genome sequenced. Uh, <laughs> but you don't think but, so? Yeah, that's that's why I picked that one because I know that's that's the dilemma about it. It would be that would I would feel terrible to know that. Like I, that's information I don't want. But you're saying for the most part, that's not really for the most. There's there's not there's very few other things today that we, your genome will tell you that are really that useful to you. But they may they that will change over time. And uh, I mean. People right now get their blood pressure taken all the time. You can get it taken in the supermarket or at the pharmacy, but some people would rather not know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just one data point. But the genome is like thousands of data points like that. And you can choose to look or not look. Yeah. So the important stuff now is figuring out what all the genes do and what's multi-gene and uh, polygenetic, or I don't know what the language is for all of that. I don't recall it all, but it's, you know, we have it mapped. But we don't know what still still we don't. It's not like I think some people think it's mapped out, so we know what everything does. So you just plug and play and edit at will. But that's certainly not the case. No, and I you know I can't get into a. Um, it would take too long to have a discussion of all the things we're doing in genomes right now. But um, they range from figuring out the genetic causes of of a lot of of, of inherited diseases. We don't know what the what genes cause them. Uh, to figuring out cancer, which is uh, a fundamentally a genetic disorder. Cancer is not usually inherited, but it's one of your cells gets a mutation that um, makes it start dividing without any kind of checks, and that, that becomes a tumor. And there's many different mutations that can trigger that, but we're in the process of trying to figure those out and, and then turn those discoveries into treatments. Mm -hmm. But these are huge enterprises involving thousands of scientists around the world. And how are we doing on the, what is your take? It was just a quick flyby here on how is science in that realm going? It sounds promising and amazing. How is it going as far as the funding and the availability and people working together towards goals or the government interacting and all that? Is, is science on that level, curing cancer and stuff, is it going well? Is oh, it yeah. It's going amazingly well. Things are moving very fast. Um, the funding has not been moving very fast. Funding has been flat. The, the major source of funding for scientists in the U.S. is the NIH, and funding has been flat since about 2008, since that recession. And um, Trump proposed a major cut to NIH last year, which fortunately Congress didn't agree with. So they um, gave NIH a small increase, but um, it's got a lot of people concerned. But you know, science is basic science is funded by the public. That's just how it works because the rewards, although great, are always far off. They're not short term enough for companies to really invest. Companies come in and take the, the the results of science when they've gotten pretty far along and, and capitalize on them. But those basic science discoveries usually take years to to reach that point. And they're funded so, by, by the university system and private individuals largely? It's primarily funded by the federal government in the U.S. Okay. and by the federal the, the national governments of other countries, too. But mm -hmm. the U.S. is one of the, um, the biggest investors in basic research and has been one of the most successful um, uh, producers of, of discoveries in, in biomedicine mm -hmm. for 50 years. So somebody being deeply invested in these real scientific fields that's really getting work done, 
high level work. You've got a lot of awards and credentials and credibility, of course, there. Is that basically why it became a pet project of yours? Or I don't even know if you would say pet project, but like the pseudoscience thing and attacking those those things, You do you, how do you encounter that? Like, do you, is it a personal affront or is it an impediment to doing real stuff or is it just fun? Like, how do you actually feel about that kind of stuff? Well, um, since you asked, the way I got into it was um, uh, soon after the Human Genome Project, I actually started a project to sequence the flu virus. Um, it's a very small genome, but we were sequencing. We Our goal is to sequence um, hundreds of them. And actually, with that project is still going on. It's in 2003. It's still going on, sequencing thousands of virus viruses every year as a way to get better information about what flu viruses are circulating. And that information is used every year by the committees that decide what to put into the vaccine, which you may know changes every year based mm -hmm. on what, because a flu virus, unlike most other uh, common infections, mutates a lot from year to year. So we have to change the vaccine. So at the time we started, there were very few genomes available. We started sequencing flu viruses. And in the process of uh, and that started getting some publicity. It was a very, very successful project. And um, a reporter called me about that project. About must have been about one of our papers. And uh, we were talking about the vaccine and stuff. And he said, oh, by the way, this reporter from the UK said, oh, by the way, I have a young daughter and I was not sure I should get her vaccinated because I heard that might cause autism. And this was the first I had heard of it. It was the early 2000s. And I was like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. How could that be? I've never heard of that. And I started looking it up and um, I realized that while scientists like like me and, and others were spending years of our of labor just trying to make the vaccine a little better, there were people who didn't even think vaccines worked. Right. And I realized that I might have a bigger impact on society just by educating people about, hey, you know, we've this one we've already solved. But there are people who are saying we haven't solved this problem, this problem of, of preventing many childhood infections that can cause all sorts of other problems, including death, but lifelong disability in some cases. We've solved that. Vaccines are incredibly effective. And there were people out there and are people out there spreading the message that, no, they're bad for you. They're dangerous. They'll cause other kinds of neurological problems. None of that's true. And I realized that um, scientists like me, if we had the uh, opportunity to speak out, we should. I didn't start blogging right away, but a few years later, I started blogging and I decided, you know, I'm an educator in part, and so I should take some time to try to educate people about the things that we've already solved, things that are completely obvious with the scientists, like vaccines are good for you, and like um, magical energy treatments don't work, but <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who don't know that, and so that's what I write about. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, because scientists have a hard time communicating sometimes, not like necessarily individually. I mean, some of them do that as well, but, you know, it's such a... Their focus is so far off sometimes from communicating at large and the scientific papers are, are, are difficult for a lot of people to get through. Even the abstract of them is not reading that a lot of people like, know. you know. Absolutely. And, we're and, trained that way. Sorry. Yeah. That's how we're trained to write those papers. Yeah. I, I did a little, I did, I actually was, uh, had some biology training, was in pre-med for a while and, and went through and had, had to write a couple of papers and in college before I wind up switching to music and doing something else. So I, you know, I, I, saw how that road went and I knew that I didn't certainly didn't want to be the one writing them and then but I can read them a little bit so I, from time to time I can get in there and pay a little bit more attention I think than the average person but it but there's a giant gulf between scientists and the average person too because the average person thinks they know everything that they know and then they 
they still think of the scientist as a really biased person that just has a certain agenda for his field and this he maybe he knows that but he doesn't know about this and this other guy pretends to know I don't know but the, it's a lot of logical traps that people fall into it's very easy to take somebody down a, a weird road with some vague scientific stuff that they don't know the difference in or don't know how don't even know simple language about uh, peer review or or anything like that so it's a seems to be like that's escalating too so we certainly need people fighting back and writing in more i guess layman's terms or something like that yeah so i mean you're right scientists are not always very good at communicating we're trained to be very restrained in how we say things and to qualify everything and i realized that um it's um if you're bringing the if you're bringing a, a what is it the phrase ringing a knife to a gunfight mm-hmm. you're you're going to lose every time so if you don't know the argumenting the argumentative tactics uh the strategies used by the other side your rebuttal if couched in the careful scientific uh phrases that we were used to using won't have any effect at all right. so you have to be more direct you have to be more simple you have to realize and i try to do this when i'm writing i think about writing for an audience which is completely which is you know educated but not scientifically educated mm-hmm. And I realize there's a certain there's certain tricks that you can that that people who have uh, promoting scam treatments use again and again. And that, uh, for example, they love anecdotes. Anecdotes are very powerful to people. People oh, love totally. a good story. Yeah. So you tell a story about some friend of yours who went to some quack who gave him some energy treatment. You know, waved their hands over their body and they were better. It was amazing, and people believe it because why would you lie? Uh, and maybe you're not lying. Maybe your friend told you that. But there's no reason to believe it's true. And so I try to explain to people that I don't mince words. I say that's nonsense. I try to be polite about it. I don't, I don't um, curse at them. But I say, you know, there's no evidence that that's true. I have friends who believe in some of these things. I play a lot of tennis myself. And we're constantly, my friends and I constantly getting injured. And when you get injured, there's the chance for, you know, you go and look on the Internet. How do I fix my aching knees? Well, or- you need one of those iron bracelets, of course. That'll fit. Yeah, or right now the thing is that there's that tape that you see Olympic athletes wearing on their, on their muscles, which I blogged about a couple of years ago. And um, in the uh, Summer Olympics last time, they were doing cupping where they put these uh, glass, little glass bowls mm-hmm. on, your, they, on your back or other places on your body, and they heat up the air inside, and they s- make this big blister on you, which looks horrible. And it's supposed to be drawing out the poisons. I mean, it's just nutso. But mm-hmm. um, when you have Michael Phelps doing it, which – we saw pictures of it was like, well, darn, if Michael Phelps is doing, he's the best swimmer of all time. It, it must be good. Like he wouldn't do something that doesn't work, would he? And the answer is, yeah, he would. Athletes do it all the time. Athletes are uh, notoriously superstitious. Yeah, you smoke pot at a frat party, too. So go ahead and try that if you want to be a good <laughs> I'm just kidding on that. But he yeah. but but if you it's so low cost, like for somebody to do something like, well, it couldn't hurt. I guess is a big part of it. And then it turns into this whole phenomenon. Everybody will get into something for a while because, well, it, he did it. And maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong, but cost $8 or $50. I'll try it too. You know, I think that's the way. Yeah, and it's maybe I, mental and placebo to that or whatever. I don't know. I, and I often tell people exactly that. I say, look, if you want to spend your money on something and you think it helps, uh, go ahead. There are a lot of practices that are mostly harmless, but what, but some of them can be harmful. Mm-hmm. And, the attitude that you can ignore scientific evidence and just go with your gut or go with what your neighbor told you, 
that um, is a little bit more insidious, I think, and and, and can be very harmful. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, we need we need society to recognize the benefits that science brings, so it'll keep investing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you when it comes to actually having there, there's a website called What's the which has compiled thousands and thousands of, of, of little anecdotes. They're just anecdotes of um, people turning to alternative medicine for um, conditions where there was a treatment and as a result, getting much worse and frequently dying. Mm-hmm. So that's where the harm is. There was a famous case in Canada a couple of years ago of a couple who withheld medicine from their child who had meningitis, I think it was meningitis, an infection, tr- totally treatable. And they gave a, I forget what they gave the kid, you know, herbal treatments and supplements and the kid died. Mm-hmm. And you hear those kind of stories and you think like, how many stories like that are too many to hear? So yes, usually if you have a cold, and you want to take, you know, echinacea, it's not going to make your cold go away, but it's not harmful. You know, if you want to have some kind of a concoction that you think might make your cold go away faster, it won't, but it won't hurt most of the time. Mm-hmm. But if you're then treating someone who really is sick with something that doesn't work, then uh, that can be very, da- very dangerous. So vaccines, we I think I see where you probably are at with them in general. Is there any anything at all to to worry about on vaccines is all anybody saying anything bad about a vaccine just is that all nonsense um in the scientific community there's there's no no there's no reason not to get vaccinated the benefits are enormous Mm -hmm. the potential harms are not zero but they're vanishingly small i would Mm -hmm. put it this way if you're willing to cross the street then you're taking on a risk Mm -hmm. the risk of vaccines is much less than the risk of crossing the street or say driving to your local grocery store mm-hmm. and potential um, the potential uh, benefit, the benefit you get is, is tremendous. It used to be, there was no argument about vaccines because they, they, when they were first introduced uh, on a wide scale back in the fifties and sixties, there were a lot of diseases that were killing a lot of people. And uh, particularly polio was the one that really got people scared back in the forties and fifties. And when the polio vaccine came out, people were lining up around the block to get it. You didn't have to convince people. They were mm-hmm. begging. For but the problem is they've been so successful at making these infections go away that people don't think that the infections are a problem anymore. So many, some people have commented that it's going to take like a major outbreak uh, epidemic to make people want vaccines again. So there are diseases that people don't get anymore. Like, you know, there are not many people getting Mumps, not many people getting measles, not many people getting chicken pox, or a few, but they used to be really common. And when you get large numbers of people getting them, some of them have really bad side effects. It's not just like a cold that goes away in a week. You can have long-term damage from some of those diseases. Do you have a policy of getting into it with people? Because the, the first thing that usually happens is a, a shift of the burden of proof to where they're like, oh, well, well, explain what about this? Well, what about this? And all this stuff, as if you have to explain your way out of stuff that doesn't really exist or isn't. There's no evidence for it in the first place. But how do you find it when you actually engage with somebody? Because most people that are into pseudoscience or also conspiracy theories are often like this. They they just, you know, is they have such a dedication and a squirminess to it that it seems futile once you get into any kind of point-by-point thing with a person. Well, I haven't been in that many direct discussions mm-hmm. with people who believe um, – some of the things that I write about. It's mostly, I'm trying to reach people who haven't heard about them, who are on the fence or undecided. Um, before they hear the get misinformation, I'm trying to give them good information. 
on the few occasions when I have talked to people who clearly have, uh, I would consider views that are uh, somewhere on the far side of, of uh, pseudoscience, I it depends on who they are and what my relationship is with them. If I know them well enough to, if I don't know them very well, then there's no point in trying to engage them in an argument. They'll just walk away. If I know them a little better, I try to be sort of, you know, gentle and polite and say, why do you think that? Where do you get that from? Try to get the best thing I think you can do is try to get them to ask some questions mm-hmm. themselves because people are much more convinced by that. So, you know, I try to find out like, you know, why do you think that? What happened? Who told you that? Um, if it gets more into it, I might ask like, what does that person have to gain by telling you that? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, usually it doesn't get that far. It's, 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 a, it's a very challenging thing when someone is really convinced that something works. Um, uh, some of them will, will not change their minds no matter what you do. There's nothing you can tell them. Yeah, and it's this different for different things. Like certain things just garner this very, very strong, vehement stuff. And sometimes it's just counterintuitive or against conventional wisdom. So a lot of the stuff falls in the category of that, where it's like, well, it's, you know, this sounds good and anecdotally it, it worked or it seems good. But then sometimes things don't really line up or underlying things change or societies change from what we're used to or whatever. I mean, I thought I saw something you wrote a while back that was talking about the the uses of antibacterial soap not being all it's cracked up to be, for instance. That was yeah, so antibacterial soap was um, that's a little different. It works. Mm-hmm. It kills bacteria more effectively than regular soap, but not much. Um but there was, it was um, a solution in search of a problem. And what happened was um, the people who sell soaps discovered that consumers really like to buy antibacterial soap. It seemed like that would make the product sell better. So they started putting, um, there were one or two antibacterial ingredients that they use, I forget their names, that became um, just uh, widespread and were added to pretty much everything. It was hard to find any form of a, of a hand soap, liquid soap, that didn't have antibacterial uh, additives to it. And then what was happening, uh, an unintended consequence was that all, all this stuff ends up going back into our water supply. And we're, we started to see, scientists started to see um, uh, drug-resistant bacteria appearing in the environment because they were getting exposed to these antibacterials, which we needed in some cases to actually kill bacteria. So the, the scientific community became fairly uh, rather alarmed that what antibacterial soaps are doing is encouraging the, the growth of drug-resistant mm-hmm. bacteria in your own home. We're using those soaps, and they started to warn people. And now, actually, the manufacturers have backed down, and I think they're using them less, and I hope they'll just go away. Because basically, if you wash your hands with soap and water, that gets rid of most of the bacteria using antibacterial soap might have a marginal benefit, but probably not. Mm-hmm. So it, nobody nobody really needed that. It's just that once that label was there, it started selling like hotcakes, and, and then then it caused other problems. Well, we yeah, really- and it's kind of a no-brainer to your regular conventional thinking, though. Oh, it's antibacterial, you know, that kind of thing. And it's really hard to get somebody, to a non-expert, unless they to tell them it doesn't matter. So it just falls into that category. Into, that's the yeah. less egregious category. It's very easy. I mean, it's just obvious, like, well, I suppose antibacterial is better. But it's, these things are pretty complex. Um, I think one that's really one of my favorite ones that I can't ever make any progress with anybody is I've always been fundamentally skeptical about chiropractic work. 
No, that's what I wrote about this week. Yeah, I saw that. I was just so thrilled because I knew I was going to have you on. I didn't even know that that you had that article. I was like, yes. Because I decide them on the basically. I, I have about. I write them on the weekend. I usually decide no more than a day ahead of time what I'm going to write about. Well. So I, <clears throat> The experience I have with it is I've been a few times when I had back pain. My wife likes to go to the chiropractor. And I just, I mean, I can get to the place with her with a massage and chiro where I'm like, listen, I guess if you like it, if it makes you feel better and you really want to do it, I guess that's okay. You know, I won't stand in your way, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to yeah. for you to really think about it. I don't really think it's what you think it is. And I can tell, by the way, the chiropractors that I've been to, and okay, I hadn't been to all of them, you're right, but I've been to a few and they use language that I know to be slippery, confusing. They ask me a bunch of stuff to try to get to me to volunteer information, almost like a fortune teller would do. And then they say, oh, I could tell. If you, you have been in a car accident once I volunteer that, you know. And it's not. Interesting. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff to it, not to mention it's all history and everything. But I have absolutely never been able to get anybody to be anything but angry with me for saying I'm skeptical of that whole thing. I, 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 that's just insane. Everybody goes, well, I know one, and he's a good guy, is what everybody says. He well, helped me. I Yeah, I've heard the same. Um, I went to a chiropractor once about 25 years ago. I have a, some chronic neck pain, and they love that. Um, and it was a weird experience. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't really uh, – didn't consider myself a skeptic so much at the time, but I was already a scientist. And uh, he did some things I don't even remember, you know – and it didn't really help, not surprisingly. And uh, and then he like wanted me to start coming back regularly. And I got calls and all this marketing material. I'd never been to a doctor who did that before. Mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised and, and put off by that. But I didn't really give it much thought until, uh, you can ignore that, until much later when I started looking into what chiropractors actually think and and what they how they're trained. Um, but they're strategy is they spend a lot of time with the patients they talk if they're good they'll be uh good that is fr- they'll be very friendly they seem to be very attentive mm-hmm. and patients love that and they're kind of partially they're giving you a massage feels good and so people come out of the office feeling better and there's nowhere you're going to talk them out of that right so um if if they enjoy that experience and they want to spend their money on it that's uh, their money but I would say if you have a serious problem with any kind of any kind of bone problem, any kind of skeletal or musculoskeletal problem, you need to go to a real doctor because there might be something wrong with you. And chiropractors don't know how to identify that, don't know how to treat it. So you, you, you go to an orthopedist. And if you have bad knees or bad shoulder or bad back, you go to a real doctor who will give you a real medicine. Chiropractors are never going to cure you, but they may make you feel momentarily better with the treatment they're giving you. And they may make you feel like warm and fuzzy. From, from the way they talk to you, but they they are, aren't qualified and don't even have the uh, um, um, usually the they don't have the skills to do a lot of treatments that that might actually do something. So like if you needed arthroscopy, they don't do that. They're not qualified, not licensed to do it. Thank goodness. Not even to diagnose, to even. Yeah, they can't diagnose it. They're not well. They're not trained to. So they could go. I guess uh, I don't know. You know what they might figure out for themselves in their own conventions, but. Um, they're not trained to diagnose, uh, genuine musculoskeletal problems. And they are trained in stuff that's kind of, uh, well, the fundamental belief they have is that, that you, uh, that, uh, misalignments of the spine cause kind of everything. And if they can correct those misalignments that they call subluxations, that that will cure you of the original 
Um, the guy who invented it, D.D. Palmer, thought it would cure even infections from the cure of this, mm-hmm. which is kind of nutty. Um, but it, it, there's never been any evidence that these misalignments exist. If you, if you look at what they think subluxations are, if your back were really that far out of alignment, you'd probably be dead. So you, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense physiologically what they believe. But a back massage feels good. Who doesn't like that? Well, and so, the most important part about all of it is then you release the toxins and then you drink a lot of water and then it flushes out all the toxins. And that makes oh, you, almost everything. But, oh, but the, the, all of it. Yeah, that's for sure. The to- Just getting rid of the toxins alone. Think about the benefits. <laughs> so many chiropractors also espouse other kinds of things. I know some of them now practice acupuncture as well. Some of them are anti-vax. Um, it doesn't surprise me, even though those are should be kind of independent belief systems, but once you're willing to adopt one kind of fantastical belief system, why not adopt another one? Right. So I, you know, I don't know what to, what I would say to your wife, but um, if she wants to get um, a physical treatment and make her feel better, I'd say go to a physical therapist, which is less expensive than an, an orthopedist, and they can most aches and pains they can treat, and they're professionally trained, and they'll do the right thing, mm-hmm. and they won't give you this other hocus pocus. Well, how does it? How do they? Chiropractors particularly, I mean, how do they slide it in there? It's, it's, it's almost like they got grandfathered into medicine somehow. Like they, they've been operating as what they are for a long time. And, and it and just seems like people, they have, so, they have like a credential that I think actually a lot of acupuncturists and other healers and therapists stuff don't seem to. And I'm not sure why that is. But most people really do think of them as real doctors, I think. Well, they, it goes back over 100 years. There was a lot of very aggressive and clever marketing by D.D. Palmer's son. That's who made it popular. None of us were alive then in the early 1900s. So I'm not sure what he did to promote it, but they founded a college out in, I think, in Iowa. And I think there's four colleges of chiropractic in the U.S. Maybe there's six. There's not that many. And they give a degree that they call Doctor of Chiropractic, so D.C., and they call themselves doctors, and they're very... Uh, they're very assiduous about saying doctor so-and-so over and over again to all their patients, but they're not real doctors. They, but they're, you know, they have this degree. Uh, and as I wrote about this week, they're covered by Medicare. So how does that happen? They're well, just, I, they've been successful, I guess. Lobbying. Mm-hmm. So that's how a lot of things happen with the government. But then what happens is you get covered by Medicare and then you turn around and they can turn around and point to that and say, look, the U S government endorses what we do. They pay for it. Right, and they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. They make the argument like they wouldn't do that if it didn't work. Now that's not true, but the U.S. government certainly does lots of things um, that they shouldn't do. But nonetheless, that endorsement by the U.S. or implicit endorsement um, is certainly a powerful uh, marketing tool for them as well. The U.S. government does not pay for acupuncture, not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. And so that one you've written a lot about. So is what? What? What's the? deal on that how do you debunk that one it seems like to me well again how could it do anything is would be my first question but what what well, is, is um it is doing something to your body it's sticking plunging a needle into your body uh, multiple needles in different places so you there's an intervention so if you're actually doing something as opposed to some of the energy medicines where you just wave your hands over people's body there's those are even more silly so acupuncture could possibly do anything but if you look at First of all, its, it's origins um, make no sense scientifically. They're uh, from a pre-scientific era. They think there are lines of energy flowing through the body. They call it chi. They call those meridians, and the energy is called chi. And they, they think that by 
plunging in these needles, you're, you're manipulating the flow of chi and therefore correcting some ill in the body and making people feel better. That's all complete uh, nonsense. It was made up out of, you know, made up by people who didn't know about physiology. And then, you know, at a time hundreds of years ago when uh, everybody was pretty ignorant of physiology and, and, and biology, but there's no reason to still believe it. Um, sometimes what we've learned in recent years is that um, the popularity of acupuncture today, it actually wasn't popular at the beginning of the 20th century. It was popularized by Mao in China because mm -hmm. he didn't have enough money to provide medical care to his large population. And so as a kind of a scam, I shouldn't say kind of a scam, as a scam foisted on his own people, he started promoting the idea of the wise country doctor, the wise country Chinese doctor, and promoting traditional Chinese medicine, which included acupuncture, and selling people on the idea in China that that would be just as good, because that was all they could afford. Now, there was no evidence that Mao himself or any of the people in power in the government ever used it. They didn't, they knew better, but they foisted it off, off on the people. And then um, there's been a, and since the opening of China to the, to the West in the Nixon administration, there's been kind of a fascination, maybe even going back further, but certainly since then there's been a fascination on the part of many people with Eastern philosophy. And then of course it follows maybe Eastern medicine has something to offer. So they looked at that and uh, the Chinese themselves didn't really believe acupuncture worked, but then people in the US took it up and said, oh, look, this ancient Chinese practice. Yep. But there's no evidence that it's really an ancient practice either. Well, that's one of the uh, fallacies that people fall for pretty easily is just, well, it's ancient or somebody in back in a thousand years ago did it. And and it's just even funnier because then it relies on an anecdotal evidence that's not even your own, but it's just some historic, you know, thing because it's old and it's still here. People say validates it I, or they don't say that, but I believe that plays into it. It's just that well, it's old. And that argument is an interesting one, and I have a good rebuttal to that, which I've said to people, is that if you, it sounds good, if you're interested in, um, uh, if you're an archaeologist, ancient is a good thing. If you're a, a doctor, ancient is not a good thing. Right. In right. modern medicine, you don't go to get like the oldest treatment. You go to get the newest treatment. You have cancer, you want the newest, latest treatments because we haven't cured it yet, but we're getting better at it all the time. So it, any medical modality that doesn't change over time should make you very, very skeptical. Because a long time ago, people died very young of all kinds of things. They didn't, they couldn't cure anything in ancient China or in the early day, in, or in you know mi mi the Middle Ages in Europe or in colonial US. They, people died typically in the Asia, in, in their 40s uh, of things that we can easily handle now. Mm -hmm. So you don't really want the medicine they had available to them then. So ancient is a terrible argument in favor of a medical treatment. So even if I even if acupuncture were ancient, it would not be a recommendation for it. Just the opposite. So there are a number of the alternative modalities. Acupuncture is one. Chiropractic is included here. Homeopathy is included here. None of them change in response to evidence. What they do is they uh, change the ground rules. They move the goalpost right. and try to explain why this latest bit of evidence that they don't work is not valid. But they don't change their practice. In science, which I know a lot about. When we try to come up with a new treatment or any kind of new model of something, uh, we test it out. We're very good at testing to see whether something works. And if it doesn't work, we abandon it and move on. And we've done this over and over and over again. And that has not happened with any of these alternative, so-called alternative medicines. Or now they're, they change their name, so they're now calling themselves integrative medicine. But they don't change anything that they do, and they don't change what they believe. Yeah, everything else that. updates, right? <laughs> if you want a cancer treatment— I can tell you, I've followed a number of different types of cancer in recent years. They've been 
we've been as a community developing new treatments. Some of them are extremely promising. And if I got cancer tomorrow, I want the latest stuff. I don't want the stuff they were doing in the 80s. Yeah, well, they use that the backwards way. They say, oh, you, you thought you knew what you were doing in the 80s and you're doing totally different stuff now. So obviously you don't know <laughs> what you're doing. We've been doing the same thing for a thousand years. <laughs> Yeah. So the fact but, uh, that we update science makes people uh, criticize it because, well, see, you thought you used to say this and now you say a different thing. Yeah, I know. That's the point, kind of uh, updating it, changing it, moving it forward, getting yeah. the thing, you know, updating is all it is. Doesn't That's not invalidating the previous. I mean, if it is good, we're we're all better for it. it. I mean, there's different kinds of updating. Sometimes we come up with a better model, a, a better treatment. And it's not that the old treatment was wrong. It's just that we have something better. Sometimes the treatment really doesn't work mm -hmm. and there were reasons to believe it would work and we test it and find that it doesn't work. Like a good example is uh, high dose hormone therapy for menopause, which seemed to make sense when we were able to synthesize estrogen and we know that then people started, doctors considered like, well, when women pass menopause, their estrogen levels drop way down. They have symptoms as a result of that. Their bones get weaker, it causes osteoporosis. So maybe if we gave them estrogen, that would fix it. It seemed logical, and then they started doing that, and it does actually have some benefits. But after studying it for a number of years, they found there were other side effects that were quite bad, including an increased risk of, I think, both uh, heart attacks and cancer. Mm -hmm. So they don't do that anymore. Um, but so that's a case where the medical community reversed itself. The original treatment wasn't based on good data. It was based on a model, a hypothesis, and then as data came in, the people who were following it realized, oh, actually, that we were wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's important for science to, as quickly as possible, to correct themselves and throw out those treatments that aren't working. Uh, so that doesn't happen with, it doesn't happen with acupuncture and, and, and homeopathy and chiropractic. Because if they did, they got nothing else to do. They only have one trick, uh, people who practice those things. So they can't move on and do something different. Yeah. And the part of what's weird about it that I, I try to tell people to pay attention to is, Listen, it's the the end of the unavailableness of scientific studies is a huge red flag because these industries are massive. So if they could do a study and get some evidence, they'd fund the shit out of it. They would have their well, studies. Are, you know, well, there are studies of the more well known. If you've heard the name of something, it probably are some studies. And what I also educate people about it when I can, I occasionally write about this, is that. There are a lot of scientific journals, and there are scientific journals that are just crap, if you pardon the language, and they will publish anything. And so you can not only do a study that shows acupuncture works, you can get it published in a, one of these crappy journals. So to figure that out, you really need somebody who knows how to read the literature and look for the, the well-done studies. And when you look at the studies that are, that are well-designed, that have a lot of subjects where they can really measure the effect, they are uniformly show that acupuncture is, has no benefit at all. But there are studies that say it does, and the proponents will point to those. So if you see a study that makes a, that even, that you even read, you still can't know if you're not a trained that it's not a good study? Is there a way I to know? Is there, I mean, what is the way I, I, to I, untangle this? I, I re read studies all the time and I hear the result and I'm skeptical and I have to go and like look at the details of the study. It takes a lot of work. Um, and no one really has time to do this about everything. So um, what we end up doing is relying on experts to tell us. And um, those are only the experts are only as good as their expertise is. So if you want to know whether a treatment works, 
um, for something where it really matters, like if you had cancer and you want to know what to get, you'd want to find a reliable, knowledgeable, uh, up-to-date oncologist who really knows the literature and keeps up with it because it's just too technical for people to read. But um, you do read about you know miracle cures of all sorts all the time. Sometimes they are based on studies. Um, and I always tell people to be skeptical, even so, even though we want them to be true, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be careful. Well, the other thing that I think gets people, like you were talking about the acupuncture being a scam or not really a scam, but it feels like you're saying something bad about people, you know, and I, and I guess you got to get, it makes people really uncomfortable that know a chiropractor, for instance, or, or, or go to one for, to hear somebody that they don't know, like me or you tell them that's not that's a quack or, or it's, they're not real doctors or it's a scam because it, it feels like a, you're insulting somebody that they know and trust the character of. And so is it important to say that even the people a lot of times doing these, at least they believe it? Like they're not actually counting their money in the bank, cackling when you leave saying this is all bullshit. Probably. Oh no, no. I think, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I, I think there are two categories of people who, uh, who uh, offer pseudoscientific treatments uh, there are ones who really believe them, and they're just not uh, well-educated. They've been miseducated, some of them. They're not necessarily stupid. They've just been educated in something that's wrong, and they didn't question it. They weren't skeptical enough, and they came to believe it, and they have a support system around them that, that keeps reinforcing that. They have patients coming in saying, you're helping me. So mm-hmm. they think it's really working. So they might really sincerely, very strongly believe they're providing benefit, and it would be devastating to them to find out they're wrong, but they're still wrong. Sorry. <laughs> And I'm sorry, they're just wrong. Um, but I would have difficulty myself confronting him. I used to play tennis with a with a in a regular group, and one of the guys was a chiropractor. And I asked him, you know, when I first met him, like, "What do you do?" And I just couldn't bring up. <laughs> we just didn't talk about it. We just played yeah. tennis. Yeah. But you know, then there's the other category, which is people who know damn well that what they're offering is a scam, no and doubt. they're really reprehensible. I think so. Uh, then the when I find an example of that I'm much much harsher on them in my blog. That's like the think- ones that people that you put you go into the place and you pay them and you put your feet in the water and then you know it, the water's black by, after the treatment's over stuff like that where it's just obviously like a crook. It's thing. hard to tell who believes this stuff and who doesn't. Really hard to tell who is just a blatant scammer and liar and who isn't. Like uh, for example, Doctor Oz. Mm-hmm. Seems like a very educated guy is a is on the faculty at Columbia University Medical School. Uh, he went to I forget where he went to a top medical school. He ought to know better. And some of the things he promotes on his show are just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I think he's a showman and knows that a lot of what he's doing is is baloney, and he's making a lot of money uh, by doing it. So he's just doing it. Mm-hmm. So I can't believe he is that blind. And I want to say ignorant that he doesn't understand that some of the things he's promoting are complete and utter nonsense. Yeah, he promotes you know all kinds of herbal supplements and stuff to like miracle fat buster cures. That's his favorite thing to do is is, is uh, diet treatments, and none of them work. And it doesn't take much training to go and read a few studies and see that they don't work. So if he's not doing that, that's just really irresponsible. If he is doing it, then he's just out and out lying on a show because it's a, it makes for a good show. Yeah. I but I I don't see another alternative. I don't see someone like him as having looked at the literature for Garcinia Cambogia, for example, or one of the other supplements that he promotes, and not understanding that it didn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. 
And so supplements in general is a whole thing, right? Like just supplements yeah. is just an insane industry. But you've written stuff that just talking about, I saw one that just calcium. Don't don't need to take calcium supplement. Doesn't work. Doesn't help. I mean, so supplements are totally unregulated. And I like to um, start with people by explaining they are totally unregulated. And the supplements industry does everything it can to make you think that the FDA is, is watching over them. It's kind of ironic because they don't want to be regulated, but they want you to think they're regulated because then you think that there must be something to it because somebody's checking. So nobody's checking on their claims. Uh, they're considered like food. So as long as they're careful not to make health claims, the FDA can't do anything. And they often step over the line and make health claims anyway. And then occasionally they'll get a letter from the FDA saying, oh, stop that. And they'll change their labeling. But calcium is one of those ones where totally plausible. Our bones have a lot of calcium in them. And you'd think that you know, and as you get older, your Sounds bones great. get bigger and weaker. So take some calcium supplements. It ought to help. And uh, the studies that have been done show that it doesn't. It should help. But just taking dietary calcium doesn't apparently make your bones produce much more calcium. But does any. that include drinking it in milk and getting it from yes. vegetables, too? Still doesn't help. Um, well, or no, you no. Say, you get calcium in your diet. You, you know That you, you need. But if you take it as a supplement, it doesn't take help. Taking it as a supplement yeah. doesn't seem to help any. So there's no reason to do it. Um, certainly taking pills doesn't help. So there, and, and taking a daily multivitamin has become kind of a very, very popular thing over the last uh, 30, 40 years in the U.S. But there's no evidence that that helps either. I used to do it. I used to take several vitamins because I read about them and Sounds read great. stuff that was, you know, I thought, well, you know, the intuition is if we need these vitamins to live, which we do. So taking a little more of them ought to be better. If Couldn't a little hurt. bit's yeah. A little bit's good, so more should be better. That is not true. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just, but it was, it's it'd hard. be so easy to make a study that could prove some benefit if there were one. This is billions of dollars of, of an industry. Like, they could fund all the studies they want if they could even find one thing that wouldn't they do it? I well, mean, you're there, saying they do are, have a lot of studies out there that are bogus, though? No, no. I'd, so, with supplements, Let's talk about vitamins, which are supplements. Okay. Yeah, vitamins. They're just, they just happen to have a letter instead of having a name. So, you know, vitamin A and vitamin E are just letters for, for things. And vitamin C also has a name, ascorbic acid. If you're deficient in one of those substances, you need it. And then you then there is a need to take a supplement. Vast majority of people are not deficient. Vast majority of people do not need to take a daily multivitamin. But if you have a deficiency in vitamin C, you get scurvy. And Vitamin C will cure you of scurvy right away. Has an amazing cure rate, almost 100% as far as I know. So sure, vitamin C is good for you, but um, taking mega doses of vitamin C doesn't help at all. Won't help fight so, off that next cold that you feel coming on, for no, instance. No, and many people right. feel it will. And that actually, vitamin C has a special place in history because it was uh, its popularity is all due to a single single scientist named Linus Pauling who is one of the 20th century's great scientists, one of the few scientists ever to win two Nobel Prizes. So brilliant man who um, later in his life decided that vitamin C would prevent colds and help you live a long life and basically have all kinds of health benefits. This was not his area of expertise. And smart <laughs> as he was, he was wrong about that. He didn't do any studies, but he wrote a book. I think he wrote two books, or at least one book about vitamin C. And that kind of launched the industry back in the 70s. I think he wrote that book. And uh, and he was supposed to prevent cancer as well as prevent colds. And he took mega doses of vitamin C every day for many years. He did live to a ripe old age, but then he got cancer. Um, 
So uh, everybody thought, well, you know, Linus Pauling, famous scientist, brilliant man, there must be something to it. He never did any studies and people did studies because of him. They did just because he was so respected. People did studies to see if it was if there was a benefit and found uh, eventually that mega doses of vitamin C don't have any benefit at all. You do need vitamin C, though, and you need all the other vitamins to, to live. Well, um, so. What about the uh, what was the thing I was going to you just said something I lost my place here. Um, how about stuff like people, the ones where people like to do something where they just think it's less processed, so it must be better, like raw milk. These are the ones going to actually do some harm here. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. That's a very interesting one. So raw milk and raw cheeses have become very popular in recent years. That is, and even raw um, water, have you heard that one yet? I have, I have. <laughs> um, when these things come out, people send me this stuff because they want me to blog about it. So... That is based on what some skeptics call the naturalistic fallacy, that something that's natural, the more natural something is, the better it is. So the more it is in its native state, the better it is. So Louis Pasteur was one of the great scientists of the 19th century. Uh, the Pasteur Institute is one of the major universities in France now, named after him. And he discovered pasteurization. That's why it's called that. And probably save millions of lives because raw milk has bacteria in it that will make you sick, will give you diarrhea. And if you are already sick or weakened in some other way, it can kill you. It's a very bad idea to drink raw milk. Most of the time when you drink raw milk, you won't die. So you can find plenty of people say, I drink it and I love it. Mm -hmm. But in, before we had pasteurization, when everybody was drinking raw milk, we had lots of people getting sick every year and we had people dying every year from bacteria in milk. I mean, cows are not that clean. I'm sorry, but they're not that clean. And um, their uh, nether parts or, you know, their anus is fairly close to where the milk comes out. And so there's lots of bacteria in, in raw milk. So, and raw cheese, same thing. So terrible idea, just a terrible idea. And the idea that raw, this raw water thing, that's just kind of that's um, hilarious. I mean, it's kind of hilarious. People are paying a lot of money for water that has <laughs> not been processed or filtered. And, you know, water is water. It's H2O. And you don't really need anything else in it. Um, the raw water that comes out of, the, out of a stream has other stuff in it. Right. And <laughs> I'd rather put it through a filter before I drank it. So, oh. yeah, I'm familiar with those things. I, uh, if somebody is a you know full-grown adult spending their own money on it, I think like, well, you're probably going to hurt yourself, but you're taking a risk. Yeah, fair. That's your that's your choice, but don't give it to your kids because you might kill them. Yeah, well, that's uh, the kid thing is where I draw a line on a lot of stuff. Was vaccines as a kid issued to me, and they've got baby yeah. chiropractors. I know people that will take their yes. baby to a chiropractor and let it pop their spine and stuff. I cannot believe that, but. You know, yeah. that's another issue. And, and when you go into that and, you know, giving kids raw milk, that's, that's nonsense. I mean, it's, that's, more, that's not funny. That's no longer funny to me at that point. No, that's not harmless. That is potentially going to kill the kid. So that's very, very worrisome that people would be doing that. And the, uh, with the raw water, I mean, with water in general, I, I don't know if you've written on this or not, but I was trying to tease out and discuss with people the other day that I think there's, I just operate generally from a bias thing. Like I see people... I see all the biased reasons why they would like something, and then I tend to be skeptical or try to oppose. I don't always obviously know what I'm talking about. But I was thinking about how people are so big on water, force yourself to drink water and all this stuff. And I, it seems to me like that is way, at least way overdone on the benefits of drinking water. I was wondering if you'd encounter anything, had any thoughts on that. 
like drink your body weight in water and in ounces or whatever? Um, I'm not really, I haven't read up on that. You, you're supposed to stay well hydrated. That's mm -hmm. good for you. Most, mostly your body tells you when you need water. So if you're thirsty, drink something. Mm -hmm. And if you're not thirsty, you don't need to. So, um, that's the only thing I've heard experts say that seems reasonable is if you're, if you're not thirsty, don't for, you don't need to force yourself to drink a lot of water. Yeah. It seems like guilt drink water is what I always think people are doing. They're like, well, you know, I better drink because what forces, this, you know, I, I play music we on the road all the time and so there's water bottles around and people are like, okay, yeah. I'm going to do this too. I'm going to just make myself drink these two waters before we, you know, just whatever it is really? I, to stay healthy or to, I, I might be getting sick and all, you know, stuff like that. And just, that's just, if you force yourself to do it, it's got to be good for you. You do it and just think that's always been pretty silly. Well, that's one that's probably, if they're just drinking water, it's, that's pretty harmless. No, oh, it's definitely, not, yeah, not going to hurt them. I don't think it hurt them. Yeah, as long as it's not raw water. No, no, um, not raw water, no. But I just call it guilt water. People that drink water because they'll just be healthier if you just do it. But it's just a matter of you're hydrated or not. But Well, if they're drinking it instead of a high, highly sugared soda. No doubt. No doubt yeah. on that. Um, what about, though, you know, you, you say, well, just go to a, a, a real doctor uh, in whatever field it may be. What about the areas where it seems like medicine itself is is goofy or out of whack or or actually is behind the curve? Like it seems to me like a lot of doctors are behind the curve on diet with the scientific study. So yes, they're real doctors, but it almost seems like they're behind on, for instance, my doctor is not as big on the low carb and the style of eating that I kind of dig that I think seems to be, and I'm trying to interpret this for myself, and so maybe you could advise me, but my previous doctor wasn't into that. Really, she would just basically say, no, it was a very basic balanced diet kind of thing. Avoid these fats, avoid all fat, eat some lean meats, and maybe some healthy fats. And I found another doctor's way into, you know, that kind of thing. But I'm not trying to, I feel like, well, let me make sure. Do I need to listen to my doctor? Do I need to try to find the best science for myself? How am I supposed to sort that out? So it seems to me, though, my inclination, even though I'm skeptical, is that modern medicine is pretty behind on certain things, such as diet. Well, there's a tremendous amount of bad science around diet. Mm -hmm. Tremendous amount. So even if you go and read the literature, you can read a lot of bad stuff. Uh, and it's very hard to sort through what's good and what's bad. There's also a tremendous number of fad diets that come and go. Mm -hmm. uh, most of those are really bad. Um, some of them are not so bad. Um, and they're usually focused, at least in the U.S., usually focused on how to lose weight. Right. Because uh, we have so many people who are overweight. Um, I, the, uh, the general advice is just eat a balanced mm -hmm. diet you know, is lots of fresh fruits and vegetables and not too many processed and fried foods. And that advice has been true for decades. They're the only other, and I would say this, doctors don't necessarily keep up on all that literature. So if you're, if you're comfortable looking at the studies, um, you can learn about that on your own, but I wouldn't learn about it by just surfing the internet and looking at fad diets. I would look at sure. studies from reputable places, um, he, like uh, there's a guy named Walter Willett, Harvard School of Public Health, who's been studying diet his whole career, who's looked a lot at carbohydrates and how much you should have. And, the, and he's written books about that. So um, there's some good science on it, but it's very hard to figure out. One, one reason it's hard to do good science, even, even if you have good scientists trying to do good science on diet, is that you can't lock people in a room and feed them only certain things the way you can with rats or mice in an experiment. So you basically tell people, follow this diet and keep a log and then report back. So people cheat, right? So yeah. 
And they don't necessarily tell you, and you can't really control the uh, subjects in those experiments. So that's one problem. So some of the best um, evidence we have comes from natural experiments where you go to, you know, you know about the Mediterranean diet, right? Mm -hmm. So there's pretty good evidence that people who live around the Mediterranean and in Italy, in certain areas of France and Italy uh, and Greece live pretty long, healthy lives with low rates of heart disease. And they eat a lot of olive oil and fresh fruits and vegetables. And so the hypothesis is that if you follow a diet kind of like that, you'll be healthy too. And there's pretty good evidence that that's true, but that doesn't mean that's the only diet that's good for you. There's probably a hundred different diets that would be that would be good for you. It just means that that one seems to work for a large population. But it's, so it's just very complicated. It, it's, I'm not really an expert on this. But it, no, no, and I don't expect you to be an expert on anything at, uh, other than what you are an expert in, but I'm, I'm just- I'm, genomics. Yeah, in genomics, was, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but- what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like the medical system still is a big, slow-moving kind of thing, and it, there can be some times when, you know, just listen. You, you hear so many stories, and I, I guess they're anecdotal, so fair enough, but there's so much stuff where it feels like the doctors are slow or out of date or just systemic in a way that they're not paying attention, and maybe stuff is moving on past, the, you know, there's, there has to be natural biases and, and flaws in a system like medicine because those doctors aren't expert in everything that they're doing. Well, now I, now I have to say that um, you can't speak about doctors as a monolithic group. Right. There's a tremendous amount of variation among doctors. You're a musician. They're all musicians the same. They all know the same techniques and, mm. and uh, styles and have the same expertise about other forms of music. Of course not. And doctors don't either. There's a huge amount of medical knowledge out there some doctors are more up on it than others. So if your doctor is not uh, really well informed on one particular thing, like say diet, a good doctor will just won't give you advice on that. And will say like, well, I, I don't really have anything to tell you. But if you want advice, doctors are kind of, they're people too. They want to help you. They want to give you some advice, but they don't have much to offer. So it's perfectly reasonable for a doctor not to be up on everything. There's a lot of specialists out there and you have to see a specialist for a lot of things. So, so you have a, a great amount of trust. I mean, because I think trust in doctors and institutions systems is, is, you know, declining in some ways. I think that's a general trend, and that's not necessarily good. Um, but I think it probably is the case. You think that there's, like, a, how do you recommend people deal with second opinions and doctors or seeking the doctor that you want? Because it seems to me like it's more prevalent for people to say that, well, I don't think that doctor knows what they're talking about in that area, which I, I'm not immune to myself. Well, if you go to a specialist, they should know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. but I'm skeptical as well. And when I go to some, I mean, the main specialists I've seen myself personally are specialists about joint problems because I have injured my knee and my shoulder multiple times. And so I've been to orthopedists about that, but I read the literature about that. Mm -hmm. So I find out Based on what the doctor, I know what the doctors might recommend. If they recommend something which is, is a little bit out there, I would be out the door. I have not gone to doctors like that, and they haven't done that. But I'm skeptical, and if they recommend something, I go home and look it up. And I would tell people, if you're not sure, go home and look it up. But don't look it up by Googling it. Go on to PubMed. Try to read the abstract after your doctor's told you about something. That, that might be too hard for some people, but that's the best you can do. PubMed and is you a good be source. Afraid of asking your doctor. And you also don't be afraid of asking your doctor, what about this treatment if you read about it? Um, doctors get asked that all the time. Some of them don't like it. Um, patients ask about lots of wacky treatments. Um, and doctors have 
the good ones have learned how to answer those questions in a, you know, gentle, persuasive way. Say like, well, I know about that, but it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But if it's a new treatment, then they should be open to learning more about it. Yeah, it just seems like continuing education is going to be key there for everybody in every field, really. So, um, and I'm not I'm not that critical of medicine or anything like that. It's definitely definitely it's so it's such a weird feeling to want to push back against something like a doctor because that just feels it just feels pretty treacherous. But at the same time, you want to be in charge of your own stuff, and it's, it can be complicated because things seem grayer than ever. It's just easier to doubt experts and institutions every day. Uh, so so. I- the, the the trend in the last couple of years or few years about doubting experts on everything, I think, has gone a little too far. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine to be skeptical. I think when you hear somebody on a political show talking about why a tax cut's going to help you or why a tax is going to hurt you, that's a political position, and they have a bias, and you can you should be skeptical of all those things. Physicians are not doing that. Doctors are not right. doing that. I I know lots of doctors personally. All the ones I know are trying their best to make their patients get better. They have one goal and one goal, and they don't care what their patients' beliefs are. They just want to make them get better. They are more or less expert, depending on the person, but they really are sincerely trying to offer expertise that's going to make you get better. So they're, so you should trust them in that sense. Not They're not just giving you their opinion because they're biased. Right. It's not because they're a Democrat or Republican. <laughs> it's, it's what they think is the best treatment for you. And- it's also, if, if it's something serious where the treatment would involve, say, surgery, totally fine to get a second opinion, and you should do that. And every good doctor would welcome that. And I know many doctors do welcome that. Um, they actually feel it's it's helpful to them if there's a second opinion, if it agrees with them. And if they're threatened by that and don't like that, then you should see another doctor anyway. Mm-hmm. Are there um, other pseudoscience things that you'd like to challenge that I've not given you the opportunity to? Because I could listen to them all day long, GMOs, uh, climate, whatever. I do GMOs and climate change too. Okay, so GMOs thumbs doesn't matter, right? Everything's genetically modified anyway, <laughs> so it's not as big of a deal as people make of it. Yeah, GMOs are it's it's a strange thing that they become a boogeyman of certain people on mostly on the left, but there's just uh, that's something I am expert on because oh I really do yeah yeah genet- well I do genomics yeah. and genetics, so I know exactly what goes into genetically modifying organisms, and it's fine. It's like it's like um, it's a tool. It's a tool. You don't get mad at a tool. So what happened was was very unfortunate. And this then I have to go over this, but very unfortunate, I think, for the for the politics of the issue of the situation is that Monsanto used GMO technology to make products, and there are multiple ones that are uh, to make um, plants that are resistant to an herbicide that they produce, so that farmers can use this product. Which, by the way, farmers love the product, but they can spray spray they can grow Roundup-ready wheat and Roundup-ready soy and Roundup-ready corn, and then they can spray lots of Roundup on their products, which does control the weeds very well, and it won't hurt the crops. So Monsanto used it in a way, used the technology in a way that pretty much just seems to benefit Monsanto and doesn't benefit the world. But there's a lot of tremendously valuable uses or potential uses of genetic modification, and some of them are being developed. Uh, golden rice is one that's often pointed to a, a version of rice that has more vitamin A, which in areas of the world where people are deficient in vitamin A, deficiency causes blindness. So rice being a staple food, this could be a benefit. And yet anti-GMO forces have burned the crops of test fields where they're trying to develop this golden rice. So they're in a classic way throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They just decide technology is bad, but it's I don't really like the way that Monsanto uses it either. So just, okay, don't 
buy round, don't buy uh, Roundup if you don't like that, or don't buy Roundup ready soy, or try to convince your local farmer not to. But the technology of genetic modification has a lot of potential. So um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And like you said at the beginning, um, we've been genetically modifying our crops for centuries. We just didn't know what genes we were changing, and now we know. Right. Exactly. Look at if you look at the corn that the uh, uh, the Native Americans were growing when we first landed on North America. It doesn't look anything like the corn we have today because we modified it through we modified you know, all for selection of and stuff, whatever. Yeah, so we're we're selecting for genes that we like, mm -hmm. but in a kind of blind way. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time very much. This has been a lot of fun for me to do, and I hopefully it'll be helpful to people too. I'm not. We're not just trying to poke at dumb people or call people quacks or anything, but it is kind of fun to to think through it. Uh, out loud and, and cover a bunch of them in one podcast. So I appreciate it. Sure. And let me ask you, where where are you located in? Oh, I'm in Seattle, but I'm sure my accent's throwing you off like it does with everybody. Is that the... Is no, that... I, think, I think you said you're from South Carolina, right? I am. I'm from South Carolina originally, but I've been in Seattle for a long time. But you didn't lose the accent? No, I still talk this way. I'm going to keep it, I think. I'm from South Carolina also. Are you really? What part? Oh, yeah. Columbia. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm I'm more of a Clemson and upstate Greenville kind of guy, but my father's a retired professor from from USC. He was a professor there for 40 years. So, that's why we live there. Well, that's great. My parents still live there. Well, it's very nice to meet you and I appreciate your time and if you want people to follow, do you like just follow your Twitter? What's your Twitter account? I know your blog and it's, stuff on Forbes. It's at Steven Salzburg 1, no spaces or anything. And Salzburg is S A L Z B E R G. Don't let the spell corrector put a U in there because it's an E. All right. Well, I recommend or you following you. Google you. my name if you spell it right. Yeah, you Google his name, it'll come right up in a lot of stuff. And I, you know, you put out what two articles a month, and they're they're excellent. How about I, two months? Yeah, and I really enjoy reading them. So thank you for doing them. I get a lot out of it. Appreciate it. All right. Nice chatting with you. You got it. All right. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Jabberjawmedia.com. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.